Um, hi, I'm Julia Meltzer. Welcome to Clock Shop and to our Dreaming Land Back into Reality program. Um, we're about 3.45. I think people will continue to trickle in. Um, and uh, I want to start by saying that I'm the founder of Clock Shop, no longer the executive director. And uh, Sue Bell Yank, who is back here, is the director. And um, I'm going to start with uh, our land acknowledgement. Clockshop acknowledges that we are living on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Gabrielenio Tongva peoples. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Tongva Gabrielenio, Shumash, Fernandeño Tataviam, and Keech elders, past, present, and emerging as the traditional caretakers of Tovangar. Um, I also want to just call out board members who are here today. Thank you for being here, David, Cynthia, Ashley, um, Beth. Am I missing anyone who I'm not seeing? And all the many partners I know who we work with. Um, I was asked, why is Clock Shop doing um, a whole program on land back? And part of it grows out of our work that we've done with California State Parks over the last decade almost, and most recently the outreach and engagement work that we did uh, with California State Parks at the Bowtie. And part of that really provoked us to think about public lands, who owns these lands, who takes care of them, and also that that site, the Bowtie, is um, traditional land that's right along our river and has been ceremonial space. And we did, uh, with Hugo Garcia, who is here, where's Hugo, where am I, there's Hugo. Um, we did a lot of deliberate outreach to um, indigenous communities and getting people to give feedback really way in advance. So in that thinking, we proposed to do a series of conversations about land return. And this is the first in a series. It's funded by the Mike Kelly Foundation for the Arts, and if you have this program, you can note that on Saturday, January 21st, 2023, um, we're going to be doing um, a talk about Bruce's Beach. And um, Kavon Ward, who was one of the main organizers, and um, the attorney who worked with them, um, and April Banks, who's working with us on another project, will be here to talk about that and how that land was returned. So I hope you'll return. Um, so we're really honored to have this illustrious group of people with us to talk about this. I'm going to introduce Alina, and then Alina will introduce everyone else. Alina Bokde was appointed as Chief Deputy Director of the County of Los Angeles Department of Parks and Rec in December 2020. Prior, Alina served as the Deputy Director of the Planning and Development Agency for the Department of Parks and Recreation. Appointed by the governor in 2018, Alina serves on the statewide Wildlife Conservation Board. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. So welcome, everyone. Again, my name is Alina Bokde. I am very excited to be here and um, very much welcome our panelists and looking forward to the discussion. Um, so we are going to spend a little bit of time uh, going through some questions to hear from our panelists on uh, the issue of land back. And then at the end, we will open it up to see if there's any questions or comments from any of you. So if anything kind of strikes you as you're hearing um, our panelists here, please kind of keep note of that. And we will have some time at the end to open it up for questions. So. Um, so I want to introduce uh, our panelists here. Um, so sitting right next to me is Victor Bolayitz, um, who is the District Superintendent of the North Coast Redwoods at California State Parks. Um, Victor has been with State Parks since 2007, and his collaborative work with resources and programs that have spanned management jurisdictions began in earnest in 2008, so soon uh, after joining State Parks. And it includes work with local tribes, federal, state, local agencies, as well as nonprofit organizations. He has been involved with the development of One Tam, Redwoods Rising, and California Landscape Stewardship Network Collaborative, and continues working in partnership to manage landscape scale resource projects and programs with partners in California's North Coast region. 
He is a registered professional archaeologist and has a BA and MA in anthropology from San Francisco State University. Welcome, Victor. Thank you. So, sitting next to Victor is Rudy Ortega Jr., who is a former chairman of the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission and has served on the commission since 2004. He is the tribal president of the Fernandinho Tratavian Band of Mission Indians, a native sovereign nation of northern Los Angeles County. As the current elected tribal president, Mr. Ortega oversees his tribe's governmental body and manages affairs pertaining to the rights of all Fernandinho Tatavian people. From 2004 to 2019, Mr. Ortega has served as the executive director of Puku Cultural Community Services, the tribe's nonprofit that serves the greater Los Angeles County American Indian community. Welcome, Rudy. And sitting next to Rudy is, uh, we want to welcome Kimberly Morales Johnson, is an enrolled member of the Gabrielino Tongva San Gabriel Band of Mission Indians. Uh, Ms. Morales currently serves as a tribal secretary for the tribe and as a community elected commissioner for the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. She is the co-founder and vice president of the newly formed Tongva Taraksat. Pahavat Conservancy, Land Conservancy. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Morales' father served as tribal chairman, and her family maintains native tradition and continuity by living on their tribal traditional land. <clears throat> her passion is telling the story of the Tongva with, by, and for the community. Formerly an elementary school teacher, she earned her master's in public health and taught diabetes education with Riverside San Bernardino County Indian Health in 2010. Ms. Morales is a PhD candidate in Native American Studies at UC Davis. Welcome. So um, I want to start off by uh, centering us on kind of the topic of the uh, panel today. So what is the land back movement and what are some of its ultimate goals? So we'll start with Victor. I got kind of a low voice. Um, literally, land back. Land back to indigenous people. Um, what does that look like? So I'm gonna, a lot of the perspective I have is going to be as a, a bureaucrat, part of a state park system, part of state government. Um, what have we done for land back? Up in my area, we have a city that is uh, given back uh, to Watt, which was uh, Gunther Island, place of massacre. Um, gave that back to Wiat folks. Another land exchange has happened in uh, partnership with um, Cal Poly Humboldt, now Cal Poly Humboldt. And those are the two instances of actual land going back in, in that area that I'm in, up in the north coast of California. Um, I think that one of the things that I've been trying to do is when you're working through process and when you're working through what does that look like, is developing those relationships with folks and getting indigenous folks back on their ancestral land. We've got lots of policies and rules that uh, restrict folks from doing stuff. And a lot of the stuff I've been doing has been moving towards that. One of those aspects is co-management of lands. We have government-to-government -government agreements, Joint Powers Authority. We just signed an MOU, uh, tribal ID, come into a park, gather what you need to do. But supporting contemporary cultural practices, tr traditional practices on homelands and welcoming people back into their homelands. It's a preparation for when do you actually give the, the management of those lands over. That's something that I'm willing to do and working with folks towards doing. Um, a lot of times there's a, a, an issue of capacity. You can give somebody a plot of this and then it's how do you manage that. And I've got a, I've got a friend, Kutcha, uh, rising baldy. Um, it isn't even a conversation. It's, how do you do it? You give it back. 
and when I go into, well, how do you manage it, and how do you do this, she's going, none of your business. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Victor. <laughs> so, Rudy? Yeah, I think, uh, as Victor said, and, you know, one thing is, as the tribes, we look at land and we look at our history, and the fact of us here in Los Angeles as tribal people, our land was completely taken away, right? And so in recent conversations that we had with county, uh, as far as discussions about land acknowledgement, but we wanna take it further. And as Victor says, how we receive land returns. My tribe, my family, we, we fought for lands since time immemorial. When folks came in here that weren't originally from these areas, so when you look at land, it's such a connection. It's rooted in us. It's our DNA to the soil, to the trees. It's our ancestors that was, who had died prior who are here in these lands. And so when we see these, this is a reflection of who we are as people today. So when we talk about land return, we're talking about kin. We're talking about family. We're talking about love, connections, stories, all this essence. But when we talk to the government, as Victor alluded to all those others, we created a conservancy and they asked us, do you have experience in managing land? <laughs> that was one of the questions. And if you get land, are you gonna put a casino on it? Mm -hmm. So I told one of the folks, isn't that an embarrassing question you asked me? All right, you get to do whatever you want on the land, but when it's Indian land or tribal land that you're returning back rightfully, you're asked how we're gonna manage it, what we're gonna do with it. You know, so that, I think, land return, it's a more meaningful value to us as tribal people because, as I said, it is kin. It is earth to us, and it's generational relationships that we have to these properties. Mm -hmm. And when we ask for return, we're asking as a lost relative that it's right there we can see, but we can't visit them. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about, land return. Thank you. Kimberly? Yeah, thank you. I'll just add, it's, it's um, healing. Because like Rudy said, um, when the colonizers came and they, they just split apart our land and land allotments and people bought, people stole, and they put these conditions on the land, but they removed the people. Now, unfortunately, like following in that line of that relationship, I think our people is just, are just as fractionated as the land because our people, especially as the Gabrielino Tongva people, there's multiple um, communities of Gabrielino Tongva people. We're all, all over the place, just like the land. So what if we have a piece of land that is, can serve as a piece to um, have community, but also to build together as a common goal, to make the land usable without rules and regulations that have been imposed on us for generations? Can I, can I add one? I'm sorry. Yes, please. I just want to add one thing, and these guys could give you a much better history lesson. But um, you have to acknowledge in California that genocide was practiced on indigenous people, not maybe it was the definition of practice on people. Uh, people were punished for practicing their culture. Um, their life ways were taken away from them. Uh, they were either killed or removed from land. People were indentured. Um, they called them apprentices in the 1860s, where you indentured people. People were punished for practicing their culture, um, forced acculturation. Folks were shipped off, separated from their families, and put in schools to educate them, and separated from your land. When you have land, and that's part of you, and everything about it, um, it's a separation and a severing, and it's giving people land back is reintroducing people, allowing people, allowing, helping people practice their culture and practice their traditional life ways. So Kimberly, um, I know we've uh, set the stage, I think, to talk about land back, but can you talk about when there might be uh, an appropriate time for talking about co-management or co-stewardship with governmental entities for land? The time is now. 
and we have been. <laughs> the problem is they don't see things, um, they see things in a very bureaucratic manner, and we don't. Um, I don't really want to, I had a meeting with a very large government organization that people in here represent, and um, she said to us, you don't want any surplus land back. And we said, yeah, we do. And she said, no, you don't. It's, you're going to have to manage it. Do you know what that means? And we said, yes. Have you ever given us a chance? Have you ever tried? And luckily, as you know, and, and I'll share, we have been given the chance by one private owner to exercise our self-determination and our strength and our sovereignty. And we're in the process right now. No, it's not easy. Land work is hard work, but it's part of our story. So, Kimberly, um, can you talk about the establishment of the Conservancy, kind of some of the efforts, and, and what are the goals of the Conservancy? Sure. So there's a, it's a, it's a multi-layered story, but I was a fourth grade teacher, so I kind of am a good storyteller. So let me see if I could set the stage for you all. Um, there, all my life, I always knew as Gabrielino Tongva, my dad took me to different events, probably nothing that you would want to be at. Um, some were fun, like the fiestas at the San Gabriel Mission. Other things were not fun, like reburial sites, when they would actually remove our ancestors and have to rebury them in a separate place because there was a big building going up. But all along, I knew this, and I knew my family members, and I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with um, some cousins that taught me our ways. And in doing so, um, we wanted to have solstices and equinoxes, but we were only allowed to use a portion of the land on a college campus, and we had to have a gate code, watch out for parking, be it there at such and such time, no fire, no this. So all these rules were placed upon the ceremony. But where else are we supposed to actually have the ceremony? So we abided by the rules. Well, there was um, a woman who came from wealth who attended the Democratic National Convention, and she heard about why not rematriate and get the indigenous people of the land back on the land and have them go together and, and, and see if there can be some type of justice served. And so she approached a family, which wasn't too far from my family, but nobody that I really knew. And we decided to um, form a 501c3 nonprofit, and it's all Tongva-led. And we were able to come into um, some very good relationships with some people who helped us get attorneys in place so that we, as a conservancy, could actually receive this plot of land back. And so we have been um, busily working to restore the land and to get it to a place where we want it so that we can exercise our ceremonies and have a place where we can be together as people. Fantastic. Um, so, Rudy, I'm going to ask you to um, talk to us a little bit about the uh, I know the land trust um, that your tribe has worked on establishing. And I think, uh, can you also share the efforts and the why uh, behind establishing the land trust and what are some of the goals? Sure. Um, well, as Kimberly mentioned, one of the things, and I just said earlier, land was always a quest for us to return back to our people. To the fact in 1800s, my great-grandfather fought for land uh, what was the last remaining parcel that was entitled to the tribe? My family had the Encino Grants, which is in San Fernando Valley, was 4,400 acres. And it was lost to uh, what my great-grandmother, who was 18 years old at the time, and had my great-great-grandmother, I mean, had my great-grandfather, and lost the property to Vincent DeLosa, who became one of the mayors of Los Angeles, who was... Uh, a very prominent individual, knew everybody else, but he placed himself on the title. And even the record from the state of California says, how does Vincent show? He doesn't have any equity rights to the property because it was three tribal people that had owned the property. It was my, my great-great-grandmother's father, great-great-great-grandfather, Francisco Papa Baba, who had one of the shares of the property. 
So that's always been a story driven to all of us as in my family, my line, my father telling, telling us. And the fact that my great grandfather fought for San Fernando land in 1870s and lost, and he was prosecuted. He was indentured to, he was sued. Uh, he had to work off his debt, uh, but we're here struggling for it. And so we fought the city and, and asked for property back. And then the city of Los Angeles put property up for Chatsworth Reservoir up as well. We seeked it out and couldn't get it because the question came back to us, how do you manage properties? As Kimberly said, what I said earlier. So we created a conservancy in 2018 uh, so that we can acquire these properties and start moving forward. A little different than Kimberly, all of our folks is not to Taviam. What we did is we made the board eclectic. We asked for people who work in the space as well because we were challenged by those questions. We wanted the experts, maybe they're not tribal, but we wanted them as experts to be on our board. So when the question came before us, I said, hey, I got Victor on my team, All right? And that's what we were, that's what our strategy was. And we continue to move forward. So today the tribe forward is discussions in approximately about 180 acres together collective. Hasn't moved over. But in 2008, we have a co-management with the city of San Fernando for a park called Rudy Ortega Senior Park after my father when he passed away. And even there, the management agreement, the lease agreement, is not really in favor of the tribe. They still do that piece way back in. But today, the city handed me a resolution and saying, we're going to make it better. They knew what they did wrong. Even in 2008, they knew what they did wrong to us. But we didn't care. We said, hey, we got a little peace, a little victory. We have access to a park that we get to use that was once a village. And that's what we're moving forward. So our land conservancy called the Tavia Land Conservancy, we're moving forward on it. We want to see the success of it because we know it means the value of cutting all this white tape that blocks us from doing the things that we need to do culturally. And that gives us the access to that. So that's, what, that's where our efforts are at. And uh, we're, we're pleased to continue moving forward and work collectively with individuals who believe in our cause and supportive of us as well as tribal people. Thank you. So I'd like to talk um, about kind of the moment that we're in politically. And is it, or why is it maybe different than earlier times? Um, you know, Governor Newsom called for action for nature-based solutions to climate change. The state committed to conserve 30% of state lands and coastal waters by 2030, the 30 by 30 collaborative, um, with California Native American tribes. I guess, Rudy, I'd like you to maybe weigh in first on what is the opportunity with the 30 by 30? And um, again, maybe opine on this question of are we in different political times today? I, I believe so. I think we're definitely in political times than before. Um, you know, I've been around my father for a very long time. He was tribal leader for five, five decades, and I've seen him gone through different presidential administrations, and even myself, and we've seen the challenges and hurdles. But today, I think the people, yourselves, is making that change. And the fact that you're now listening instead of this folks are arguing with us. I think that makes the biggest change overall for tribal people to be at the table more in inclusive. Before, it wasn't. They didn't care about tribes at all. They didn't want us at the table. So having the governor's measure of 30 by 30 is a feat of us to really voice strongly of what these properties should look like, how they should engage, and how they are gonna help the environment overall. But one of the challenges that we're facing is even with my staff who are, are speaking and voicing on the 30 by 30 and consulting, the task is, the difficult task for a tribe that's non-federally recognized, how do you get the staff to voice, how do you comment the concerns that what Kimberly said? You know, herself, she's pursuing a PhD and many folks like her and her family, as well as mine, we have to work to make a living and put food on the tables for our families. So when these things come up, it's very challenging for tribes in our position to really comment on these measures. So we find it's great that Governor Newsom and prior to him, Governor Brown said, let's work with tribes, let's consult with all these tribes. And I know my staff in my office, they look at me and they probably hide the letters because they say, hey, that's too many work. Uh, we don't want to answer this no more. 
But, uh, you know, that, but even that right there is a comment. We got to go back to the governor and go back to other folks and say, well, you got to give us the working capital because you have it. You have many, you got hundreds of victors, and I have zero of them. And I know Kimberly has zero of them. So how do we answer that? But I think the 30 by 30 overall gives us the opportunities. And I think one of the measures that they should look at is tribes as they return properties, the infrastructural tools to give to the Tongva Conservancy, the Tatavium Conservancy, and say, here's property, but here's the funding so that we can get you trained. Here's the funding that we can work collaboratively on enhancing the waterways and cleaning the land and growing the property back to its natural state. That's one of the biggest things I see in the 30 by 30 that would be most successful because then it brings the community involved into our tribal community. And then when we need property for our ceremonial practices, we have such properties. Mm -hmm. And if the public wish to venture into these properties, they can learn and be told rightfully what we do on these properties. And the tribes will be more willing to share that history. Right now we're selective. We find people like Victor and we share those stories with Victor and those in this similar position that understand us. But anyone outside of that, we're very hesitant. And the reason is because so much of our stories and histories has been robbed and stolen. So we don't do it as free freely. And so that's why I think the 30 by 30, it's a great measure, but as anything, there's always room for improvements. Thank you. Um, Victor, I would like for you to weigh in on this question. You know, as a state parks uh, manager, superintendent, um, you know, can you talk about, you know, what moment we are in politically and, um, and also, you know, has it, is it different for, than previous times? So. Absolutely, it's different. I dropped all of these papers here. Um, starting with um, Brown, uh, we had some things that were set up, um, AB 52, where government agencies were required to consult with indigenous folks. Um, Newsom came out with a public apology, and he came out with a governor's order um, in 2019. Then he came out three months later with policy suggestions. So every natural resource agency or every agency under the governor's control would look for opportunities to partner, for co-management, for et cetera, with indigenous people. Um, we have electeds now in Newsom and appointments in Wade Crowfoot with Natural Resource Agency, appointments with Armando Quintero for California State Parks, where those folks that would typically put up those barriers or put on the, the brakes on something are saying, go, go, go. There's $100 million that's available for indigenous people for land acquisition. When you talk about those surplus properties, I get a list of that. It's like, here are these things, any of the agencies interested in this, and it's two acres here, or it's a city or city lot or something else. And that's something that we share with our tribal partners. Um, I think now is a time to do all kinds of things. If you look at the United States and national government, You've got Deb Holland as Department of Interior Secretary. You've got an indigenous person who is the director of National Park Service. Um, you have a fire regime in California that is crippling, and people are looking for solutions. When we talk about, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about natural resource, you know, natural resource work, and we want to go back to a natural state. So what they're really talking about, and in my region, we've got, you know, all of those old growth all of the old growth redwood trees that are left on earth. And people talk about, oh, we're gonna do natural restoration, this, but get all their natural systems back in there. And they're talking about the time of contact. And that was a 10,000 year old managed environment. Um, Rudy and folks down here have had 300 years of impacts. Where I am, it's about 150, 170. Um, I work closely with Europe Tribe and other coastal folks and in 1993, Europe Tribe was essentially established. There was a square up there, Hoopa Square, and there was an extension of that. They were able to get back 
32 miles of the Klamath River, one mile either side of the center line. That's pretty miraculous. So we talk about, you know, capacity for tribes and what they're able to do. Think of NAGPRA, Native American Grave Repatriation Act, where universities and government entities and museums have relatives. And through acts of federal government and state government, those relatives and the accoutrements associated with them are supposed to be returned to indigenous people, right? And so a university has museologists, they may have somebody on staff dealing with nothing but NAGPRA. Uh, they're asking for additional grant monies and additional money so that they can go through collections and get them ready to be returned. And Rudy, what's your funding source for doing your NAGPRA consultations? Not much, just whatever we can raise. So that's where even universities are dragging their feet and museums are dragging their feet because we need additional resources so we can characterize. It's like I have indigenous friends that say, you don't need to characterize blank, give it back. Um, but that's, I mean, where that disparity is created. I've done a bunch of things with Yurok tribe, uh, Talawa, Wiat, other folks up in, up in my region. But Yurok tribe is one of the, it's the largest tribe in California. They've got seven attorneys. They have a natural resource program and department. They have a cultural resource program and department. They have economic development and all of these other things. Um, they've been hustling for a lot of years. And it's like they have the manpower and the expertise to walk into the room and say, I want this part of $100 million for land acquisition. And I look at my two um, colleagues here and friends, and it's like, what are the resources that you have available to you? You're going to find an attorney that maybe has dealt with government land acquisition and return of and pay those dollars for that or get somebody that can do it for a limited number of, number of hours. But it's like now you have a, a national and a state movement where it's, wow, fire regimes are crushing. Hmm, what is that thing with cultural burns? What was that about low intensity, broad fire? And now it's like, oh, tell me how to do that so we can fix all this stuff. But it's really, I mean, Fire, you know, putting fire on the ground was outlawed in California in 1934. You couldn't have broad broadcast burning, and it went to all suppression. And now it's like when you come back to the original stewards and how they manage these lands and for what purpose, there's a lot of meaning that goes into it. It's not just the mechanics of it. It's that relationship with the land and plants and animals and everything. I think that's the enrichment that indigenous people in California and around the world can give to a lot of folks. We do a joint management of a um, visitor center at a special place, Stone Lagoon, Anglo name for it, but contemporary ceremony practice there. We have a building that is managed by largely indigenous folks. I have indigenous folks on staff that also work there to staff it. Um, that's a place that indigenous people in that area, their lifetimes have driven by their whole life and never gone in. And now they're going in. When you look at the goal of giving land back and giving people control over their sovereign land and treating people as sovereign nations, governments, sovereign nations, um, you get a different perspective. And now you have the enrichment from indigenous folks talking about why this place is special and what's great about it, and managing it in this way or that way. We entered into agreement recently where we're, that we're mandated to work with indigenous folks, to work with Yurok tribe on the management of lands. But that's where we need to bring up that capacity for all indigenous people. And you need to go work with government entities instead of saying, if you meet this criteria and you do this and this and this and this, then this. How do you make that an easier process? How do you make it not such a litigious, bureaucratic process? And when you said white tape, that was awesome. I was in a meeting with Talua Daini, and somebody was saying something, and somebody mentioned um, red tape, and then I repeated red tape, and the tipo for the tribe looked over at me and said, no, 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 Victor, it's white tape.
Um, Kimberly, you spoke about the holistic healing as part of the land back process. Um, can you speak to us more about that and what it means? Sure. So if you believe, which we our traditions tell us, we were here since time immemorial. So we have always been here. Our ancestors were here. And we believe that they came up from the earth. So the earth is viewed as a relative, as Rudy said. And so you bring in a colonized, we had three waves of genocide in the state of California, the Spanish, the gold rush, and the state of California. Um, and I can give you laws and everything that they did um, to back up what I'm saying. Um, so those three waves of genocide came through and there was a disconnection from the land, whether it be gathering sites, whether it be our burial sites, whether it be where we had villages and knowing our traditional ways, our, our ancestral knowledge was all taken from us. And our women specifically were put away so that they could not have babies. And there, there was this disconnect. So then we go on and here we are 200 years later and I love what you both said about capacity because we get requests all the time. Can you just tell me about this? Or somebody makes a post on Instagram that's like so offensive because it's all cultural appropriation and you wanna take the time to teach them that just because you live on Tongva land doesn't mean that you have this knowledge that we have. Anyway, that's a whole other issue of capacity because people ask constantly of us. So the land, you put it back with the people and the people start to build a relationship of reciprocity. They start to smell things that there was an imprint in their brain. And they're like, I know that smell, but I don't know what it's from. They start to eat foods that heal their body. They start to talk to the earth. They start to sing their songs. They start to talk with one another. They start to have relative relationships again with people who are angry, with people who feel that, you know, trauma has happened, but they feel this extra burden of anger or injustice inside them. So how do we start breaking those walls down to have conversations so that we can heal? And so having a place to exercise that and to teach one another, um, recently we were, um, at our property and I was able to share with the kids some of our songs that they were like, I didn't know that song. Well, there's a song that was recorded by an ancestor that's on the Harrington tapes and this is how it goes and these are the words. Where else would I be able to do that? So it, it allows for opportunity for us to do that and I believe that songs are medicine, being together is medicine and it's, it's healing for all of us. So I'm sure that when Rudy goes to his park, and I know that there's these huge rocks, those are, they're all significant. They are relatives. And we have to have times like that and opportunities without the bureaucracy, white tape, so that we can start to engage in this and strengthen our people. You know, just really quickly, I struggle with the fact that I am an over 50 year old PhD student, but, <laughs> but I had a grandfather who died at the age of 40 years old from complications of alcoholism. Why? Because there was a slave market downtown in LA that used to pay Native Americans with alcohol. So I am a result of generational trauma and that's what happens. It took me up until this point in my life to actually be able to figure out how to apply to college, let alone get funding and everything else. So these stories and our people, we need to be there to encourage one another and build each other up. I'm kind of over everybody tearing each other down in this lateral violence. Don't, I've had tribal members say, aren't you a little bit old to go back to school? And I just thought, no, no, I'm not. I'm still sharp. I got this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like for our three panelists to weigh in on this next question, and we'll start with Rudy. But how can the people here in the audience today 
uh, become more educated and ultimately supportive of land return to indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty? I'm sure that's a good question. Um, I think one way is, is uh, to visit our websites. Uh, we have tataviam-nsn.us. We also have acknowledgerent.org uh, uh, that we created. Um, and as well, um, uh, all of our organizations, my tribe has Puku Culture Community Services, a nonprofit. Um, and we're going to also now establish the Tribal Conservation Corps, which we just got funded this year from Santa Monica, I can't speak right now, my tongue tied. Santa Monica, ah, now I'm Santa out. Monica Mountains yeah, Conservancy, go. got it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a tribal word, you know, it's coming out. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we got half a million dollars to get this conservation core happening, and it's really to be one of the first in California as a tribal one. Uh, but we really wanted to grow in, uh, it further. But I'm, I'm pleased to say as well, I, we partner up with Kimberly's, uh, the uh, Gabrielino uh, Land Conservancy on a grant that we applied on my tribe. And I think that jointly coming together on efforts that are similar causes in different communities, because she's Gabrielino community, I'm Fernandinho community, but we need to start empowering each other. And I think those websites that I mentioned are a way to fund and definitely Kimberly will have her shot out right now so yeah, I, I won't take it yeah US, there you go land. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important um but uh, you know those are those are really ways to support us beyond that other ways and i see some folks that volunteer for us for our, our organizations is uh time uh, we don't have funding really to pay a lot of dollar out for employment but we do need a lot of time when we have planting or when we collaborate with other organizations to come out and support us and essentially what we're speaking about is revitalization of our cultures and people. And just as you plant a tree or bring an oak tree or walnut back into our communities here is the same as supporting the people of our ancestries. Uh, a question that I talked about earlier, just to answer on this acknowledgement, uh, what, how to support us is to give you an example. There was over 50 plus families from my tribe. And today there's only three remaining families of the tribe. So talking about genocide, that truly did occur. And so these websites will truly help us and support us if you are able to support in that fashion. Thank you. Thank you, Rudy. Kimberly? I'm sorry. Can you, no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> can you weigh in on just, again, how can people here today um, become more educated and ultimately supportive of land return to indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty? Sure. I. So our websites are gabrielino-nsn.us. Is that it? Yeah. Rudy helped me. And then we have tongva.land. And, um, of course, we always need um, funding because what I didn't share was that um, part of our land conservancy is we inherited a home that's almost 100 years old. So the pipes, the electricity, the walls, everything's almost 100 years old because she wanted to really preserve it. So we need funding. Um, we do need help, but we also need people to think before they ask. If you're asking us to give you language um, translations, <laughs> we don't really have time or energy or capacity to do that. Um, if you're asking us how you can help us, we, we're asking for your help. Get your hands into Mother Earth and help us help us work the land. We have Kudavangna Springs, which is open the first Saturday of the month. We are always looking for volunteers to work the land there. And we want to get to know you better. We want you to hear our stories because every family, every family that's been here for generations has a story that needs to be told and needs to be heard. Thank so you. listen. Yeah. Thank you. Any thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah. These guys have said, as indigenous people, this is what would be helpful. That's awesome. Um, my role as a government official, I think the way I was able to establish relationships and build trust with people was by showing up and showing up and serving people food or emptying the trash or doing this or that activity. That's when you build people's trust. You can go from your position power and you can wear a uniform and do all this stuff. So this is, think about the multi-generational trauma. 
and think about the government agencies and think about those original traumas and what's, the, what's that iconic thing that people have? Militarization, you've got uniforms, you've got this and that. And you have people that go to government to government meetings with indigenous people, government officials, that wear a uniform. They walk into a room with a uniform. Um, that's something that I, that I don't do. Um, you have to listen. And these guys are gonna tell you stuff that may not be pretty, but you listen and you build an understanding. And then what is that thing that you have that you can do to help? Maybe you can sweat copper and you can work on the plumbing of the house. You're not gonna tell them how to be or tell them how to practice their culture, but how can you be there as an ally? How can you be there to support? And it's really, I mean, it's, it's coming with your listening ears and looking for ways to be of service. That's a way that you can be of service to people. If you're looking for whatever ego, whatever that self-aggrandizement looks like, just forget about that. Um, humble yourself and do what needs to be done and listen. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Um, Victor, I'd like to talk to you about what's in a name. Um, you were part of the effort where California State Parks renamed Patrick Point State Park to Sumeg State Park, which is a Yurok name. Why was this important? And can you also share any other initiatives around renaming and rectifying California State Park's legacy of colonialism and erasure against and of indigenous peoples? Yep. Um, I'll go into the Sume State Park. So that was previously named uh, Patrick's Point State Park. And it was named after a guy named Patrick Bagan, who was a landholder for about two years in 1863, 64. He lost um, the land in a sheriff's sale. He's responsible for the murder of an indigenous youth. He's responsible for the um, irregulars going and attacking a village. Um, and, it's, and it's tragic. And there's also a geographic name that's associated with this. So through our mechanisms, ended up changing the name of the park as well as the USGS, how it's gonna show up on maps. And it went back to Sume as what Nur Nur indigenous coastal Yurks call it. Um, what changed to allow for that was absolutely nothing. This could have been done 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, there are our California Department of Park and Recreation Commission has the authority for renaming parks and naming parks. Uh, so you, what I ended up doing was doing some of the historical research, identifying who this guy was with some help from indigenous friends and scholars. I brought it to friends of mine who happened to be leadership in a, in a local tribe, and I asked for a crappy letter telling me to do that, and then I took the letter and I wrote an issue paper about why this is appropriate and why it's inappropriate to leave it as it is, convinced my leadership in California State Parks, got it um, on the roll for commission hearing. I brought in um, indigenous friends, indigenous leaders who spoke to the commission uh, we had support letters from 35 different tribes and organizations, over a thousand support letters from general public, and on the commission vote it was 5-0, and the name was changed. Um, but that's something that could have happened. I had friends, folks that came to me as soon as I got there and said, why do you need to change this name? And they talk about stories of 20 years ago, they asked some superintendent to do it. And he said, no, we just, you know, we just printed up a bunch of new pamphlets. We can't do that. And then people go to, well, what are you going to do? Don't you have to change the names and the unit numbers? Yes. Don't you have to do this and this and this? Yes. So we were able to, to do that. And the significance of that, there was a celebration that, was, um, that happened there put on by indigenous community that was awesome. And people that never went to the park before or resented the park or flipped off the park when they were driving by it with their kids, were there and celebrating. That is meaningful. There's power in names. Mm -hmm. So we've also, as a district, we've got 22 parks up there. And every one of them are loaded with special places for indigenous people. 
So we went through and identified those places that tribal members were willing to give up and that wanted to put a name on, and we did that. We had another one, Peacock Bar. So some things have to go to the commission to change, some things you can do with the authority granted by the director to a district superintendent. We had another one, Peacock Bar. Well, who are the Peacocks? Our Talwa friends shared who the Peacocks were and how that bar came to be owned by the Peacocks. That's renamed now. Every park that we have has a land acknowledgement. And you can say, oh, it's just a, words on a, on a plaque. What does that matter? What, what matters is, is that the relationship and the intention behind the relationship has changed. If you're just putting up a name and saying, this is what this was once called, um, there's no, it's just, a, it's just a plaque. You have to build the relationships on the back end. Right now, the state of California, California State Parks, is, has 21 districts. I'm one of 21. They're going to be doing that as an initiative statewide. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen are people, it's going to land on people. You must do this. So we did it intentionally and spoke with folks who have knowledge, correct spellings of stuff. When you have different political entities associating with like Europe, there are four different political entities or tribes, you had to get consensus. And that's like, I know that, and that's what you do. That's how you treat human beings. So the naming is a big deal. Um, it's, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but for indigenous people, if you could take some of your special places and have indigenous names put back on them. Um, there's another thing that we've done up there that was um, needed. Uh, we had uh, monuments, you know, like 15,000 pound rocks with big brass plaques that were dedicated in 1948 or in the 60s, honoring individuals. Um, one of those was um, Madison Grant, and he was one of the founders of Save the Redwoods League. Go! Conservation movement. Um, he was also the founder of the eugenics movement in the United States of America. So Save the Redwoods League and the eugenics movement of the United States of America would cohabitate cities when they were having their annual meetings because they had so much mix on one board and going out of the other board. Responsible for exclusionary acts, responsible for legislation leading to sterilization of folks, non-European ethics, and lots of other bad behavior. Nazi collaborator. Real-time Nazi collaboration. And his family, when he passed, burned everything that he had. They knew that history. And then there was a group of folks that tried to revitalize his image. And in 1948, through privilege, put a plaque in a park. So there are programs in state parks where if you have enough dough, you can put your name on something. What do we do for equity? What do we do for folks that have been murdered and excluded? When you look at the way that parks were designed and, and who they catered to, it was that Anglo-nuclear family. Look at the way campgrounds are configured. Uh, who had the dollars to travel in a motor coach and go to these places? Um, the original acquisition of these parks, you know, Olmstead went through, through and did all kinds of great things, but he worked with about 120 people statewide. Um, has your father or grandfather ever told you about how they were consulted on what's special about your homelands? And so you had folks that, you know, there were few women, and even that was a concession, right? It was like four or five women that were involved. What are special places in California? Why should they be state parks? And they do their histories, and they nominate them, and the legislature says, yes, approved, and here's some dollars to operate. That was in 1928. But we can't honor these people, and we have to call out these people that have done these atrocities and practice these atrocities that have oppressed people. So instead of a... 15,000 pound rock with a big brass plaque saying Madison Grant is awesome. We have a exhibit panel with no rock and plaque removed. Uh, an exhibit panel talking about, did he do conservation work? Yes, he was also founder of eugenics movement. He was a Nazi collaborator. He was a racist blank and that's there's a history, 73 years, that stone and brass stood there. Maybe we'll think about 
something else 73 years later. But that's the stuff that people have to have a conscience within positions of power, within government, and do the right thing. And the right thing means taking on additional work, doing additional research. No, can't, won't is easy. You'd like to do a whatever in this state park? No, can't do that. And I can cite lots of laws and policy that would allow me to stay with my no, and then I go off in my happy little world. When you say, I don't know, let's figure it out, then it turns into work. But it's fulfilling work, and it's work that gives meaning, and it gives meaning to multiple generations. Um, because of work of elders that was done up in my neck of the woods, there are three generations that have known ceremony all their life. Um, we have contemporary ceremony, world renewal ceremony that happens in a state park, on a beach, hundreds of people in snowy plover habitat during breeding season. And we support it, and our natural resource support it because it's significant. 80 plus year hiatus, and it was brought back in 2012. So there are educators, there are families that have, you know, they've known nothing but contemporary ceremony. And my experience is when people are able to get in touch with their culture, and even the knowledge of that and gathering, when you go out with auntie and you're looking for this type of material, you're calling auntie beforehand. You're driving in a car with auntie. You're spending time with auntie while you're collecting. And what are you talking about? And then when you're processing, and then when you're making stuff, and then when you're sharing that. That's about community, that's about culture building, and with indigenous people, that's tied directly to the land. And when you disenfranchise people, you have to look at those interim steps. So it's like I can say, nope, I haven't been able to successfully give any land back. No, nope, I'll just wait till I can do that. There's lots of stuff you can do to ready those relationships for, the, you know, for that land to come back. Thank you. Thank you, Victor, for sharing. Um, so I'd like to uh, now transition and open it up to uh, the audience, to all of you um, who may have questions, comments that you want to share. So I see one, a couple hands up. So uh, I'm just going to go one, two. If you, I don't know if you can see me. So John, you'll be first. One, two, and then three back there, so. Alina, you've done such a fantastic job of moderating this conversation and bringing oh, out a, a, a really rich and deep and, and um, complex conversation and insights. And so I'd like to um, turn the table if I could and ask you to talk a little bit about what um, LA County Department of Parks and Recreation is doing uh, in, in this arena, and, and if you can, a little bit about you know, what the county more broadly is, is doing. Thank you, John. Um, so I'll, I'll share a couple of things that, um, that at least our department, uh, Parks and Recreation, is working on. And I, I do want to say that I think we have a lot of listening to do and a lot of learning as a department. So I come into this space really with, uh, you know, I think humility and wanting to learn more. So I'm, uh, I think, you know, our department and our leadership, our director is very committed to, we hear Victor, you know, talking about the importance of building relationships and building that trust. And I think that that is absolutely very important um, to our department. Um, so a couple of things that I'd like to share. One is, uh, and I appreciated, you know, Rudy's comments and uh, Kimberly's comments about kind of the 30 by 30 and, and the, the initiative and, and the efforts to work uh, with tribes and where all of that, where the opportunity is and the need for both funding but also uh, thinking about how, what, what does either co-management, co-stewardship, or land back look like? And so our um, department has been involved in, a, I think, a, a pretty big effort to really establish a framework um, around 30 by 30 here for Los Angeles County and working um, with, I think, tribal leaders to have that conversation 
to think about what we as a department um, and as a county can do to really help advance um, the both opportunities for uh, co-management, stewardship, and uh, even where those opportunities might be for land back, but I think that you know we're we're at the beginning. I would say of the journey um, and the work and building those relationships. So so the thirty by thirty is one uh, place. Um, our staff has also we've also recognized. Um, so our department manages eight uh, nature centers, and um, and they're all placed. Uh, I mean, entire Los Angeles County, but. I think our, we heard Victor also, and I mean, actually the whole panelists really talk about the importance of sharing stories. And um, so a lot of, uh, I think some more recent work with some of our um, superintendents that are part of our natural areas and nature centers is about working with tribes, indigenous in the community to really share stories um, of the history and cultural history of the community so that, um, so we're helping with that interpretive and working together with tribes to share the interpretive, uh, uh, interpretive signage, interpretive stories, uh, looking at opportunities to do uh, programs and, um, and really lifting up the history and the voice and the stories. So that's another piece that we're, we're I would say, actively um, trying to, again, really kind of build those relationships and lift up those stories. Um, we're, you know, we, again, as I've mentioned, you know, we're definitely moving beyond, I think, what, you know, the consultation, because consultation, like, is not that is, you know, 0.01% of what we should be doing and what the relationship and the trust should be. So, um, so these are, again, I think we're, we are in a, a place of learning, a place of building relationships and building that trust. And, um, and so I think, you know, we very much want to continue in this work, so. Um, Number two, so I have you as number four. Where's, where did my number two go? I think, okay, I'll jump to number three. <laughs> go ahead. This has been a very thought-provoking uh, panel discussion, and I do appreciate hearing about what's going on in Los Angeles. It's really nice to hear more about what's going on in Northern California and the work that both the uh, Tatavium and the Tongva are doing. It's really exciting with the land trusts and land conservancies. I wanted to just ask... Uh, question about, uh, and this is a follow-up to what's been said about what can be done by folks here in the audience to educate ourselves and to build relationships and to build the trust that um, Victor's been talking about. And I wanted to hear from the panelists some thoughts about the different steps to that process. Uh, building relationships is a very important sort of informal, often sort of interpersonal process that begins. And then uh, I've been experienced uh, into some of the events that Kimberly has already referred to where we had good interpersonal relationships that were building slowly and then there were no like written agreements and then individuals leave offices and things mm. don't, don't go well. So I wondered if Kimberly or in, any of the panelists could say something about the different steps to the process in terms of building trust in an informal way and then movement towards written agreements like MOUs, easements, cultural easements, and other sorts of written agreements that then can solidify what comes sometimes out of good you know, personal relationships but don't always continue after individuals leave offices or retire or move on to other things and so on. I just want to say real quick, I want to appreciate Joe Parker for being here. He's a retired professor from Pitzer, and he, um, when he notices our gathering spots, and he knows that there's places that have not been sprayed with pesticides, so he'll reach out to tribal members to say, come gather your traditional foods. That right there is a good ally. That right there is somebody who's trying to encourage us to eat our native foods again. And he's right, like the relationships, because... As Native people, we have generational knowledge. I mean, Rudy brings in what his family brought in. I bring in what my family brings in for generations. 
institutions only hold institutional knowledge. So right now, the person at the Native American Heritage Commission has been in the position, I think, for two years or only during the pandemic. And he's never done this type of work before. So when he goes or he's trying to speak or he's trying to figure out what's going on and unfortunately, like he said, fraud, he does not have the knowledge because he's only worked there. It's his job. But for us, it's our life. It's our family. It's our experiences. And so we need to have MOUs in place. Um, I believe that that's a first step, but I don't think that that's always the answer because somebody can come in and MOUs can be written and unwritten and rewritten. Um, but relationship building is very important. And I think knowing like if you have access to something to share it with people who want to share their culture, then share that information that you have, if that's the least you could do. I, I think just to add on to Kimberly's statement, I, I know Joe as well, and he has reached out to support us. And I think one of the biggest things is advocation, I mean, to really support us as a community, our population is really small. You know, we're less than 1% of LA uh, population total. But if you're in front of folks that are policymakers, decision makers, essentially, legislators, anyone that's in office, to really voice out and say, if you're in the conversation of whatever project may be, and you don't see any tribal representation there, say, where are they at? And at many times it does tax us, but also as far as making sure there's some visible inclusion of who we are as people that are at the table. And again, I take it back to earlier, I don't want to say all of a sudden, then, then we just get a ton of requests, but we, we don't have the bandwidth for all that, but we definitely need the support, and that's one way to support, is to reach out to the tribe and say, hey, is this something that you're interested in? And I can speak for you on your behalf there if you give us the license to do so. So that's, that's a good ally overall. I'll just say I have pretty good relationships, and these are lifelong relationships. They don't go away when I stop working for state parks. But I have people saying, well, when are you going to retire? What are we going to do to, what happens when you go? And I said that we're going to tie it up in memorandum of understanding. We're going to tie it up in paper. Um, mm -hmm. Think of the original you know, negotiations that were done with indigenous people. 18 treaties, never ratified. They went to the federal government. They were locked up. This was 1850s, locked up until 1905 or 196. There were agreements that were entered into. Um, we're doing an agreement now where folks show a tribal ID. You come into a park and you do what you want to do. Aunties don't want to call me and say, hey, can I go gather this? Because it's none of my business. And they don't want to do that, and they shouldn't have to do that. Show an ID, do what you want to do. Five-year agreement. With that agreement, there's no, then we will reevaluate re and we'll do this or that. It's an automatic renewal by doing nothing. So unless there's something that's coming up in conflict that folks agree to, then the agreement just goes on into perpetuity in five-year chunks. And that's what we look for. So my joke is, when are you going to be done whatever? I go, when's mandatory retirement for a civil servant? Well, thank you. I think we're going to uh, wrap up our time here together. Um, so I know, you know, I, I think uh, we may, for those of you who may want to stick around uh, and ask any other questions, but I just really want to thank our panelists. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. I just want to really acknowledge and recognize the incredible work and uh, hard work that is happening uh, from, from you, from your families, from your tribes, and just um, thank you for all that, that you do.